Psalms 23. I'm sure Psalms 23 is probably the most known, most quoted portion of the Bible in the world. It has what some would call poetic beauty, but it's mainly a description of a shepherd. And in describing a shepherd, it shows relationship and intention. That this is who he is to us. Jesus is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And his intention, his desire in being our shepherd is what the next five verses tell us about. So we're looking at Psalms 23. This is our third time on this. And that we so far we've covered the first three verses. And let's read it again. And then we'll pick it up for tonight in verse 4. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You notice all the he's, what he does? Verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It can't get any better than that, I don't think. you got the whole package here. As we've already said, he begins by telling us, I'm your shepherd. You know what a shepherd is. He's one who tends and protects and leads sheep in a pasture. He's got a job of protecting those sheep and overseeing those sheep, making sure they have food and water and that there's order and amongst them. They're not being bullied around and hurt and got to make sure where we take them there's no poisonous weeds and we got to watch out for all the predators and the coyotes and the bears and the lions that were around in those days and make sure we got water. That was a shepherd's job. And if he did that well, his sheep did well. And when the pasture was getting down to where the grass was eaten down enough, he would take them to another place. He'd go look at the other place. Did he bring his sheep? And they would follow him because he took care of them. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And that's the picture we're supposed to see of our relationship to him because he's describing his relationship to us. This is what you can expect from me. And there's only one reason why this psalm is not working for people. And there's 13 blessings in this psalm. I don't know how many of them people ever experience, but there's 13 of them there. And all of them are yes and amen. But there's only one reason that it won't work. Only one reason it doesn't work. Because he says he leads, we must follow. If we don't follow, then it doesn't matter where he's going. We're not going to be there with him because we didn't follow. But he said, again, the Lord is my shepherd. Let me just quickly say this. He said, I shall not want. There shall not be a decrease in my life. I'm not going to be worse off for following Jesus. I will only go forward and I will not go backwards. 
and in the bigger picture, he will train and teach me how to take comfort in him and to find pleasure in just being with him wherever he's going. But he said, he is my shepherd, I shall not want. Then it says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. There's got to be a picture here that we're supposed to see of how it ought to be right now tonight in our lives. Since I turned to the Lord, since you turned to the Lord, since we turned away from the world, we've turned to Christ after all these years or however how long you've been a Christian. Surely there's been some kind of an impact in our life where some measure this is working for us. He leads me beside the still waters. Listen to what Albert Barnes says in his commentary. This is good. He said, The idea is that of calmness and repose, as suggested by the image of flocks lying down on the grass. But this is not the only idea. It is that of flocks that lie down in the grass fully fed or satisfied. They're once being completely satisfied. That's the way it ought to be. There's a lot of people that are really doing well with the Lord. They may not have everything that they want, but they've got something more important than having goods and toys. They've got a calmness and a peace with the Lord. They know that he'll take care of them, that he'll lead them beside the still waters. They won't be disappointed. God said in Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 14, he said, I will feed them in good pasture upon the high mountains of Israel. There is a reason he says high mountains. Because some of those high mountain pastures were important for sheep, especially in the summer. They escaped the heat below and those meadows up in the mountains were a, a place not only of serenity, but it was a good place for sheep to spend the summer. And the shepherds would find such a place and take them up there, and the, it was a good thing. But he said, I will feed them in good pasture upon the high mountains of Israel. Shall their fold be? There shall they lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. You know, sheep like that will never wander off. Those who are experiencing this kind of supply and blessing from their shepherd are not likely to get bored with it, are they? They're not likely to wander off. They're not likely to have their mind wonder when the shepherd is calling and not get what he said. They know that when they follow him, this is one of the ways he takes care of them. He leads me beside the still waters. The margin in the Bible for some of those who have a Bible that says this, it says waters of quietness. It's just, it's a poetic picture. It's an imagery that, that we see in how God tenderly cares for us and takes care of us. With all the difficulties of life and all the problems and all the confusion and the bitterness and the difficulties that this world seems to be going through all the time, for you, following him, it's like still waters and green pastures. He leads, I follow. And when I follow, there will be communion. It's the communion that's going to change my attitude and my outlook. And this is what happens. Now, verse 3, we mentioned last week, he restores my soul. I would like to think that's what's happening. A part of that is happening tonight. God is putting me back in order. 
When he created Adam, he created a perfect man. When sin came into the world, sin corrupted all of man, corrupted him in many ways, in various ways. And God takes flawed human beings like us, and he brings flawed people to us, knowing all about those corrupt sins in our lives and terrible things that we once did or said. Knowing all of that, he brought us to him and begins a process of change. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and so forth, growing up into him in all things, to be like Jesus, Christ formed in you. All these things the Bible speaks of, about what God does to people like us. He restores us. He restores us and changes us so that he doesn't have to judge us. If you don't let him affect the change in you and you remain as you were, he has to judge sin because that's exactly what happens. If God leaves us alone and we remain much as we were before we come to Christ, same old difficult attitude, same hard head, same unpliable nature, he has to judge that. That's not what his kingdom is going to be like. And before we get to his kingdom, he is preparing us for it. Like a bride being adorned, we're being prepared for the Lord's coming. I mean, he does want to say, and the Bible says he will say this to his own, well done, thou good and faithful servant, without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing. That's the kind of cleansing that's going to take place. So we got this to expect because he is our shepherd. This is what he does. He restores me and he restores you. And then he said again in verse 3, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You got to always remember this as Christians. When God saved us, regardless of the kind of person we were, his desire in changing us is so that we become his representatives on this earth. Paul writes that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are the ones who people can see the way we were. They see the restoration process. They see the change. And they see that we're trying to live right and do right and glorify his name and call attention to whoever's around us, to Christ in us. And the reason we give an answer to people that say, why have you changed? It's because of Jesus. Jesus is honored by his people who live on his terms. And they are his visible representatives. They are the ones that God looks at and said, the only reason I am favorable with the world is because of them. These are his people. God shows favor to a lost and dead world only because we're in it. And one of these days we'll be taken off of it, and there will be a whole lot of consternation in this world. But your shepherd is going to so affect the change in you that when it's time for you to go, you'll be ready, and he'll be pleased with you. We are to honor him and bring glory to his name. Now, let's go to verse 4 tonight. Yea, though I walk through the valley... Of the shadow of death. Now remember, we're talking about walks, paths, being led. It's a journey that we're on. And in this life, time we have, one life, it's a journey from where God 
started with us to where he's going to finish. And that journey is not always pleasant. It's not always easy. It's not always convenient. It doesn't always go the way we want it to. And there are a lot of times in our life that we have hardships and difficulties that we have a hard time coping with because that isn't what God promised. God said, and yet this is going on. And so we have to deal with that because life isn't a bowl of cherries or life isn't some little convenient lifestyle. You know, you come to the Lord, you kneel on the carpet, and you say, praise the Lord, and suddenly everything in your life is trouble-free from now on. But it's not like that. All the time I've ever read verse 4, I've always equated it with the time of death, the time that we die, and then we have to meet the Lord in the next life. And I've always thought about that. You know, he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. But think of it like this. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it doesn't say you die there. It doesn't say that that's where we die. It just says that, yea, though I walk through such a place, I will not be afraid of evil coming upon me because you're with me. If you die there, then there's nothing you can do about that. The Bible says in Hebrews 9 and verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die. The Bible speaks of precious in the sight of the Lord or the death of his saints. But he's leading us not to die somewhere as we're following him, though we will all die. But he's teaching us that as you follow him and the training process is coming to pass and he's showing you how to cope and how to overcome and how to trust in him and and deal with darkness and difficulty and tribulations and trials and troubles. He's teaching you how to do all those things. It doesn't mean you have to die. Doesn't mean we're supposed to die like that. Sometimes in the things we can't understand, some things I can't. All I can do is trust God from one day to the next. And if walking with him means that one day there's a time in which he lets you know that, you know, this is this is your hour. It's a time to go. Sometimes it is. One prophet went to a king once and said, get your house in order. You're going to die. It's not like it was a terrible thing to happen. We think it is because who wants to leave the world? Yeah, but who wouldn't want to go to heaven? You know, that's true. But having never been there, having never observed it, having never been over there to see things too wondrous for the mind to even think, I can't relate to it very well. But I can relate to this world that I'm in. With all of its tension and pressures, I still have learned how to live in this world with joy. Because I've been taught we have had it jam down our throats in the world you will have tribulation but be of good cheer Jesus isn't going to lead any of us somewhere he can't keep us and he's not taking us somewhere that we cannot cope with where we're going Bible plainly says that God is faithful who will not allow us to be tempted or tested beyond what we're able to endure There's a purpose and a reason for all the things we have to endure. 
Sometimes the things we're enduring or going through looks like we might not make it. This could be the big one. Nobody in this room knows how many times you could have died. The car could have just slipped a little bit, walking on a trail. If you'd have just, just, if the ground gave way three inches under your foot, you could have been over. You get bucked off a horse, the horse could have fell on you. You riding a bike and you've got hurt, cut your head. It could have been worse. I mean, it's a lot of times in our life we've been spared from a lot of things. God shows us sometimes, you know, I was taking care of you then. I was involved in protecting you then. I didn't keep you from getting your head cut or hurting yourself a little bit or scratched up. But I kept you from death. So here you come later on and later in your life, you come to the place where, you know, nobody knows what tomorrow holds. Nobody knows what's going to be tomorrow. But I'll tell you this. If I have to walk through the valley of the shadow tomorrow, it doesn't mean I'm going to die. But if I have to walk through it tomorrow and it's some difficult situation, I know that God did not leave me alone. He's with me. He is with me. I don't have to be afraid. I know it is appointed unto man once to die. We can't escape it. It's going to happen. It's the great dread of the world. It's the great dread of the wealthy, of the intellectuals, and a lot of the worldly people that the world owns, that the world owns and operates through. Their great dread is coming to the end of their life or having it terminated some way because they have no clue on what's on the other side. They've tried the idea that, well, you just go back to bugs. And you do go back to the dust of the earth. From dust you came, from dust you shall return. The body wasn't made to live forever in this life. That's why 1 Corinthians 15, you get a new one. Mortal must put on immortality. A corrupt body must get an incorrupt body. God raises it up and makes all things new. But you're going to die. You can't escape it. And the thing that makes the world, I want to say fools, or I may use the word foolish, in the sense that they're not wise, is that they know they're going to die, but they make no preparation for it. And yet they cannot make preparation for it because they don't believe in what the Bible said. If they believe what the Bible said, they'd given up a whole lot of things a long time ago to make sure that when they end this life, they, they got a certainty of heaven in the next life. And a man who lives without regard for God through his life in this world makes no plans for that is not a wise man. Remember in Luke 15, verse 1 through verse 5 or 6, talked about the children of light being wiser than the children of the kingdom. Remember a man was getting fired from his job? So he went to the people that owed money to his former boss. And he said, how much do you owe him? He said, I owe him a hundred, well, whatever. He said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to do you a favor. Pay for 80 up and, I'll, and just, you can keep the other 20. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Goes to another guy and does something like that. Jesus said he knows his end is coming. 
he knows he's not going to have a job maybe tomorrow. So he's making friends, as many friends as he can, that when he doesn't have a job, he can say, hey, I need some help, and they'll feel obligated to help him. You know, Even though he used money to gain an advantage, that's okay. Jesus said he was a wise man. He said, and the children of this world who are planning like that, planning for their future if they get fired, all their retirements and everything you can think of, he said, those people are wiser than my people. My people have been told what's coming. They know how it's going to end, and yet they're living like it never will happen. They think they're bulletproof. They just live and act like the world and, oh, well, I'll go to church. It'll, it'll be all right. They're not making preparations. They're not making the necessary adjustments in their life. That if you don't make them, God will have to judge it. That's 1 Corinthians 11. So if we're smart and we're wise, knowing that the day is coming, we won't dread it. We can't stop it. The clock is ticking as I speak. Everybody in here from you that much closer to your day. So it's not like we dread it. It's just a common knowledge that everybody in the world dies. You never know. And there's a lot of fearful moments in your life. Something's going to get you. Something that you don't feel right about something. And you get all these mind battles. You know, this is it. This ain't going to work. Wait a minute. Yeah, you thought I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That doesn't mean I'm going to die in it. I'm going to walk through it. But I choose to live and not die. That's a choice I can make. But I must not be afraid of the approaching day of my death like a lot of people are. People who never much darken the church door spend much of their time at the end of their life trying to get right with God. And they find out it doesn't work. Yet we read about one every now and then, and it does, but very seldom. Turn to Isaiah 55. I don't want you to take my word for it. Isaiah chapter 55, we'll come back to Psalm in a moment. Verse 6. When does your Bible tell you to seek the Lord? When does it say to call upon him? Well, now, would you agree with me then that he's not always available in the sense that you can call upon him to receive what he has? Of course he's always available because he's always God and he's always Alive and alert. But you cannot get saved or get right with God anytime you want to. That's not your option. You cannot say to God, well, I'm now that I'm this age, I've been in church a lot. Well, now I want to really get it right. I don't think you can do that. There is a time, the day of your salvation, all of you, the day of your salvation comes in your life. It may come twice. It may come a dozen times, but it only has to come once. And you can convince yourself you're not ready for that because you've got a whole lot of life to live in a world that's just waiting on you. And you can turn away from it. You can still be religious, but that doesn't mean you can ever be convicted of your sins when you want to. Because without a conviction of sins, there is no true repentance. And the Bible says, call on the Lord while he is near. 
Seek him while he can be found. Sometimes people miss church on a time that God did move. You can watch all of that you want to, but not being there when it happened doesn't mean that you'll get that same effect watching it on a DVD or something. When God moves, you really want to be there. And at a time you think not, he'll move. There's only 15 people here tonight. What if only 15 people here and all 15 of them were heavily moved upon by the Lord? Every one of them got healed of whatever they needed, wanted to be relieved of. Every one of them. All of them prophesied. All of them had a vision. Maybe they even cast the devil out of each other. But they all had something happen. Would God do that with only 15 here? He could do it with less than 15. See, my relationship to God is, if you're going to lead, I want to follow. Now, I hear voices. I hear what people are saying in my ears. I hear these little voices come and say, Abby, 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 Abby. It doesn't matter. I made a decision a long time ago to follow. Sometimes it's not convenient. As I follow him, he's going to train and teach me how to follow him with peace and with joy and not complain and not clamor and to keep my attitude right and overcome. And when trouble comes in my life, if I have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he'll teach me not to be afraid of something evil because God has taken the oversight as shepherd of all of our lives. And I am glad that he does that because he's the only one that can commentator said the true friend of God has nothing to fear in that dark valley. I don't know how many of you, if we could all think of something, there's been dark valleys in our lives. Something you really didn't know how to deal with. You wasn't sure what's the right decision for you to make now. Your mind says, what are we going to do? This is over my head. He said, the true friend of God has nothing to fear in that dark valley. His great shepherd will accompany him there and can lead him safely through however dark it may appear. I am here tonight just as you are because all those things that were behind us that we thought, "Uh uh-oh, do you realize we made it? But do you realize we didn't make it because we're clever? We made it because of the goodness of God. He brought us through. He's my shepherd. And my shepherd says to me, and your shepherd says to you, same shepherd. If in this life, while you're journeying through life, if you have to walk through some valley that looks pretty desperate and bad, you will not be afraid. I will work in you in such a way that fear will not control your actions or decisions. You'll trust in the Lord with all your heart and so forth. Death is a dark place, yes. Death is not a fun subject, right. Death is not something we'd like to sit around and talk about. Oh, let's talk about dying. Nobody does that. Because Christianity is about living. And the dying we talk about is dying to self. But we don't cower from the fact that when the day comes, Paul said, there'll be a day come. When this mortal should put on immortality. He said, I'm in a fix between two, two things here to stay with you, which is good for you and to depart and be with Christ. 
Think of that, to be with Christ. I would rather be with Jesus than with Kenneth. Or you either, Thomas, or how about you, Wesley? I'd rather be with him than I would with my wife. Oh, yeah, I would. I think that grows on you. Just as your love for somebody you love grows on you. I think the more you walk with the Lord, the more he leads and you trust him, the more he delivers you from things, the more you just want to be with him. And think, to depart this world is to open your eyes in the next world. Now, the people don't know that. If they have no assurance of that, this is a dreaded life at the end. When you come to the end of it, oh, it's so full of uncertainty. And then and, and give me more pills, put more tubes in me, get, turn the machines up as high as they'll go. I want to stay alive because I dread to act the fact that I might die. I don't like talking about death either, but I'll say this to all of you here. There's no reason for us to have to die in a wrong way in this world. God has a right way he wants us to die. Now, what is that right way? That's left up to opinion. I think the right way to die is for God to tell you that you're about to die. You call your family together and say, I'm getting ready to go on my journey. Or my journey's about to end. I'm getting ready to go on the other one. Hug them all, kiss them all, sit down in a chair and slip off and be with God. Wouldn't that be a good way to go? Amen. See what else he said in that verse. He said, for thou art with me. Does that mean an absence? The fear and anxiety is absent because he's with you? If he wants us to be worry-free, then that's a decision I'm going to have to make. But I can't make an honest worry-free decision if I'm not walking with him. He wants us to walk with him and to learn who he is. Hebrews 13.5 said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You like that? I will never leave you or forsake you. Difficulty in life? He's there. Trouble? He's there. Unsolvable situations, he's there. He may not right away come up with a solution for your life, but he's there. He's there when you suffer. He's there when there's agony in your life. Jesus was not alone in the garden apart from God when he was agonizing over what he was about to do to go to the cross. The Lord was there. He's with you, you and me. We give up real easy as Christians. We throw in the towel real quick because of fear and anxiety and worry. What's going to happen if and oh me and oh, oh my. But listen to this. Romans said, Paul said, if God be for us, if God be for us, who can be against us? Well, if God is for me, I know there's somebody out there against me. But they're not bigger than the one who is with me. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Then he said, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now, rod and staff, some use that as a single item. But it seems in 
researching it that a rod and a staff are two different things. While a rod could be a stick like a staff, a rod was also considered to be like a club. It might be what a shepherd would have. A, they say they would find a tree of, of suitable hardness and dig down into the roots of it and cut off a section of it like that. And where the roots are hardest and kind of rounded, they would cut it off there and shine it up and whittle around on it till it fits you good. It became like a club. And said a lot of these shepherds would learn how to use that thing as a club, and they could throw it like a slingshot. They could throw that thing close. It was heavy enough, and they were so good with it that if it hit something hard enough, it would hurt or knock somebody out. They said they would often use that with their sheep. They would throw it at sheep that were getting in the way or about to eat something they shouldn't or doing something they shouldn't be doing, whatever sheep would do, they would use that club to get their attention. They also had the rod or the staff, the big crooked thing, and that was often for the sake of negotiating through the trails. It was also used to whip on uh, the bushes if there were snakes in it or to grab a sheep that was about to get in trouble or go over something and he'd pull it back. It was the equipment that a shepherd had It was for the purpose of protecting and steering his sheep in the right direction. The Bible speaks a lot about a rod, especially with our children, disciplining our children. For example, the Bible says with kids, it says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Now, foolishness is what makes parents fuss. Foolish, fussing. No foolishness, no fussing. Foolishness, (laughs) fussing from parents. Now, said foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And God said the rod of correction will drive it far from him. It means if you're acting wrong and you're not doing right, God says to the parents, you need a rod. I don't think he means a club. I think there's government agencies that would have a problem with that. But government agencies have a problem with the Bible, too. They don't want you to read it in school, but they want prisoners to read it, same government. So I guess maybe if they don't get it in school, they have to wait till they get in prison so they can read the Bible. I don't know. The rod was a sign of authority. It was a symbol. When the sheep saw the rod and the staff that the shepherd had, they knew that he would use that in love. He didn't want to abuse them. He didn't try to hurt them. But he used that to get their attention. And if something was trying to get his sheep, that club, that rod that we were talking about, came in real handy. Maybe that's what David used. I don't know. You know, David killed a bear and a lion. I have trouble with him killing a lion with a, you know, with a slingshot. But he killed a giant with it. But whatever the shepherd has, whatever equipment, David, who wrote this, was a shepherd. So he's talking in terms of what... He did himself as a child. He says that this rod and this staff are signs of authority, and what they do makes me not afraid of what's going to happen or what lies down the road in front of me. I like to think that as our great shepherd, he does that to us so that we're not afraid of tomorrow. We're not dreading tomorrow's news and all of that because he said he is with us. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And the psalmist said, your rod, as a great shepherd, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
I find that when I'm with you, I'm not afraid of them. And that's the way it should be. Verse 5, Psalm 23. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. He's talking about this life because there's no enemies in heaven. Would you agree? So the table he is preparing is in this present world now. And the table that God is preparing for you is a good one. Your enemies hate it. They don't know how to find what you found, and they convince themselves they don't want what you've got. But they see you get blessed, and for them, that's not fair. That's not right that God would bless you like that. But you know what? He does anyway. The problem I have with studying Psalms 23, each verse and every part of each verse has so much in the Bible to confirm it. There's so much there you could talk about. We'd spend the night going through Peyton. I like to do that. But there's just so much there that shows us how that verse of Scripture is seen in other parts of the Bible. When he says that he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies, I see God blessing me in this life amongst my critics, my adversaries, people that don't agree and like to see you fall, and yet God blesses you, sustains you, makes things work in your life. I remember a man once was having his cattle artificially inseminated to get the best bull and get the best offspring you could and have a better breed of animal. And the guy that did the the work would come by the farm and he would service how many of your cows you had, your heifers or cows. And for this one person, every one of them conceived. And he would come back and after the vet had checked his cows and confirmed they were all going to have a calf, that guy that did that said, you know, I've done this for years. You don't always find success with every animal you inseminate. Some of them, it just didn't work. You have to come back and do it again. He said, every one of yours are working. He said, you're the luckiest guy I know. Well, really, luck didn't have anything to do with it. Even though in some cases you didn't pray, now, God, I pray in Jesus' name that all these cows will conceive. You might have been so busy you never even thought of doing it that way. But just the fact that you're his and he knows your heart, he blesses everything you put your hand to. Because he's your shepherd. He's promised this for you. It doesn't work for everybody. It works for you because you're his. Preparing your table before you in the presence of your enemy. This is our testimony to those we live around. Look what the Lord has done for us. How's come your children are always well? And I, mine are always in the doctor's office coughing and whooping, and yours are always well. I don't boast here. Just say, well, we trust the Lord. You do what? And then, you know. Or you got a new car. It's paid for wonder how you did that. Well, you, you, first of all, you find the one you want, you negotiate, and then you write a check. It's not very hard. How can that be? You know what? Sometimes I don't understand how it all worked either, but it did. I stand here tonight. I look back in my life, the last 40-plus years of it, and I think, how has he brought me into this place? There was times where there was not much of anything. But all the things that he's brought you to, and it, it's just been like a lush meadow.
And our enemies, they wonder, how can you do that? He's stealing from somebody. No. You tell them, we don't even take up offerings here. If you want to give something, you've got to find where we put it. But it's up, entirely up to you. Oh, you can't do it that way. Well, it's interestingly, God can do that. And verse 5, again, thou anointest my head with oil. Boy, you talk about a lot in the Bible. To anoint somebody was a special recognition of that person. The anointed kings, the anointed the priest. There was an anointing on utensils in the tabernacle that was used in the service of the, of the sacrifices. That they anointed these things. They even had a specific mixture of spices and oils. They called it the anointing oil. It had a good aroma to it. Our anointing oil doesn't have much of a doesn't, doesn't have much to it, but uh, it is oil, and we symbolically anoint people with oil in the name of the Lord. In James chapter five, he didn't say what kind of oil. You could put motor oil on, I guess, but it usually refers to olive oil. Well, you'd be surprised. You might have to pull over to get a dip offering. Well, if you're so legalistic, you might have to. But there was something about oil being a special thing, a special recognition, a special thing that somebody did, either to set apart or, or, or sanctify or to consecrate somebody into an office. It's to anoint them with oil. I've anointed cloths with oil. You know, people was going to put an anointed cloth on somebody. I don't. It doesn't say you have to put oil on it, but... We often do that. We get a little drop of oil or something and put on that cloth. Oil was a good thing in the Bible. It was a good thing. And uh, they used it in the candlesticks, in the holy place, in the tabernacle. And they used it to cook with. They used it for anointing. But he said, thou anointest my head with oil. I think... And I'd say it like this, God, in taking up on you, taking your needs to be his own and overseeing your life, God has made you something special to him. You're special people. The fact that you have not quit is evidence that you're special because God could have let you go instead of keep stirring you up. But he loves you. He cares about you because he is your shepherd. And remember, when God anoints a life, God endues with special power that life. For example, how God, Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Where did Jesus get his power? It came from his father. The fact that he was gifted with it like that is referred to as he was anointed. How many of you believe that you have to have an anointing to function ministerially by the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me say this. There are lots of people who can sing. But not everybody sings with anointing. 
I've heard a lot of people sing who were bold. Not necessarily gifted, but bold. I wouldn't have got up there and sang, oh my goodness. Then there are people who may not have the best voice. May not have the most beautiful voice, but when they sing, you're moved. It's the anointing. You don't have to be good at it. You just have to be anointed. God can pick these older preachers or pick this new batch, this new bunch over here coming. All he has to do to make it work is to anoint you. And that's that special endowment, that special unction that comes from the Father upon us. We can't even learn without it. John speaks in 1 John 2 that we have an unction from the Father. It means anointing. We have an anointing from the Father that in which the Word of God is made real and plain to us. God made that happen because of some exercise that he did upon your life and on your mind. And there you read it. You understand it. The guy beside you didn't. The lady over in front of you did. But you did. It was an anointing. And think of this. He anointeth my head with oil. That's something special. That's a special consecration. You belong to him, folks. You are his. He's your shepherd. You're his sheep. That makes you special. He does. And finally, at the end, he said in verse 5, Surely, undoubtedly, goodness And mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. All the days of my life. Let me tell you about goodness and mercy. This is another one of those verses that the Bible has a lot to say. Goodness and mercy is what God is all about. God is good. The very essence and definition and description of goodness in any form begins with God. Even to the point of saying there is none good but God. And whatever emanates or flows forth from God is always good. In the good way he leads us, in the good things he shows us, in all the ways that he blesses us, it's good. And because God has taken the oversight of your life and my life, he makes this statement to you and me. Hamilton, Solinger, you too, Kenneth. Goodness and mercy are assigned to you to follow you wherever you go through this life, through the dark places and the bright places, the low spots and the alpine meadows, he will be with you. Goodness and mercy. What mercy? God is a God of mercy. He is merciful. The word loving kindness is mercy. Thy loving kindness is better than life. Thy mercy, O God, is better than life. Goodness is what God shows to a sinner. Mercy is what God shows to a saint in changing his life because he doesn't deserve it. And God does it because if he doesn't, it won't happen. All the days of your life. And finally, he said, 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And with that, I want you to turn to Psalm 73. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If I live this life in this world and I miss that, I've wasted my life. If we miss heaven, we've wasted our life. If we gain the world and lose our souls, we've lost everything. We can't live again and regain it. It's done and it's gone. We have an opportunity to find that place, to enter in at that narrow gate. All we have to do is follow the shepherd. Psalm 73, verse 24. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So I say to you, whom do we have in heaven but God? And what more do I need on earth than what has already been given to me? It's already there. We may cry and clamor and, oh, God, do something. He's already done it. You've just read six verses of it. It's already done. We just failed to appropriate it, but it's already done. Thou anointest me, thou prepare my table. Goodness and mercy for sure is going to follow me all the days of my life. And the greatest of all, when my eyes do close and they don't open again in this world, he will receive me into glory. And to be able to say, you made it, means that you took advantage of what God gave you. Amen. Bow your head with me. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the goodness of it. I thank you for the joy of it. I thank you that you meant everything you said. And what you said, you're saying to us, for those who want to hear it and for those who want to receive it. I thank you, Lord, that you provided a time for us in this life. Freedom in a country where we can do this, to meet together, to have an opportunity to hear the word to ponder it, to demand action from ourselves, to live in accordance with it. We have that chance now. And I want to thank you, Lord, that Jesus is our shepherd, that he really does care and he really does lead and he really does give us counsel. And he really will receive us into glory if we'll just follow. I pray for your blessing to rest upon the hearts who love this. Not only to find a lodging place, but to live in a heart so much that it determines the way that life lives. Find us faithful, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.